Okay, to bleed or not to bleed? That is our question. Um, so it really is an honor to be here. Um, I had a lot of uh, experiences at Connecticut Children's when I was in my residency. Um, one of the fondest was coming over for breakfast after a long night float um, night. So, because Connecticut Children's always has the best food. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, so let's go ahead and kind of get started with the talk. So we're going to go over a couple learning objectives. Um, really, we're going to try to define normal and abnormal uterine bleeding. Um, we're going to discuss reasons for menstrual suppression or manipulation. And then we're going to review methods that can be used for menstrual suppression or manipulation. So Pliny the Elder, um, so he was a Roman naturalist philosopher, and he wrote a book entitled Naturalist Historia, which was an encyclopedia at that time, which was often referenced. And an excerpt from that um, has this that says, contact with the monthly flux of women turns new wine sour, makes crops wither, kills grass, dries seeds in gardens, causes the fruit of trees to fall off, dims the bright surface of mirrors, dulls the edge of steel and the gleam of ivory, kills bees, rusts iron and bronze, and causes a horrible smell to fill the air. Dogs who taste the blood become mad and their bite becomes poisonous, as in rabies. Now, I never knew that we had that much power during our cycles, um, but this is quite the exaggerated interpretation of what occurs during menses, but this was an often cited um, encyclopedia, and this was the thought at that time, and that has persisted towards our attitudes that we have now a little bit towards menstruation. So some look at menstruation and believe it to be a source of social stigma, and we work hard to conceal the fact that we're even menstruating. There's a lot of shame and secrecy um, that can be surrounding this, and this is further perpetuated by menstrual product advertisements and education with this fear that your menstrual status will be discovered. So the worse the period is, actually the more negative the attitude. And this was looked at by the Psychology of Women Quarterly, and they basically noted that women as members of a culture that sexualizes or objectifies their bodies are motivated to distance themselves or dissociate from bodily functions like menstruation because they're deemed incompatible with sexual attractiveness or desirability. And the higher level of self-objectification, the more negative these attitudes and emotions can be um, regarding menstruation. So we're taught pretty early on that menstruation can be seen as this burden or this inconvenience. And I mentioned that to really preface this talk with the notion that the intent today is not to say that menstruation is bad um, or dirty or needs to go away, um, because it's more so a beautiful thing. Um, but the intent of the talk is really to stand on the other side of that in terms of what can we do when this beautiful thing um, becomes disruptive to the daily lives of women and young girls. So there was a book that came out in 1999 entitled, Is Menstruation Obsolete? I've read it. It's a very interesting book. Um, but it was pretty controversial at that time um, because it basically was initiating the notion that maybe monthly menstruation isn't necessary. Um, and maybe it can be potentially perceived as even unhealthy. Um, there was a lot of controversy surrounding this, 
And so that kind of brings us to our first question. Is there a medical indication for menses to occur monthly? I'll let you think about that for a minute and we'll answer it a little bit later on. So let's first talk a little bit about what is normal menstruation. And we're gonna talk about menarche, which is the onset of menses. And then we're going to talk about cycle length and ovulation. So menarche, the onset of menses, usually occurs about two to three years after thelarche, which is breast development. Usually it occurs around Tanner stage four, um, rarely before Tanner stage three. The average age for menarche is usually about 12 to 13 years old, but it can occur about five and a half months earlier in non-Hispanic black populations. Higher BMI can lead to an earlier onset of menarche, and about 98% will have their cycles by 15 years old. Cycle length and ovulation. Um, in terms of irregularity, it's usually actually pretty common, especially between the first and the second cycle. Most adolescents will have about two to seven days of flow, and about 90% of cycles will be within 21 to 45 days, which is a little bit different than the adult female, in which case it's 21 to 35 days. And this is basically due to the immature HPO axis, which can further lead to um, anovulation and some prolonged menstrual cycles, which we'll discuss a little bit more later. Later. After the third to fifth year of menarche, about 60 to 80% of menstrual cycles are going to be about 21 to 34 days long. So they start to get a little bit more towards that um, adult women um, length of time. So let's talk a little bit about definitions. So Previously, menorrhagia, menometrorrhagia, and dysfunction uterine bleeding were commonly used terms, and sometimes we'll still slip up and use them a little bit. Um, but instead of heavy, instead of menorrhagia to describe someone having heavy bleeding, we now use the term heavy menstrual bleeding. Instead of bleeding in between your cycles, um, using the term menometrorrhagia, it's now referred to as intermenstrual bleeding. And instead of dysfunctional uterine bleeding, we now use the term abnormal uterine bleeding, which can come in both a chronic and an acute form. With the chronic uterine bleeding, it's where you have abnormal uterine bleeding in volume, regularity, timing, and has been there for a majority of the past six months. Acute abnormal uterine bleeding is really an episode of acute bleeding that requires immediate intervention to prevent further blood loss. Abnormal uterine bleeding can further be categorized in terms of etiology using um, an acronym known as PALM-COVID, and this was um, coined by the ACOG. Um, and you can see here AUB, um, heavy menstrual bleeding, HMB, and intermenstrual bleeding, IMB. And then it's further divided into structural causes, such as a polyp or a fibroid, and then non-structural causes, such as an underlying bleeding disorder or ovulatory dysfunction. So that takes us to our next question. What is the normal number of hygiene items used in one day? Is it one to two, three to four, three to six, or more than six? <laughs> Somebody said C, B? Got a couple out there, okay. So this is kind of where we'll get our answer. So you can see that in box one, this is basically the outline for normal menstrual cycles in adolescent girls. 
Um, average age, as I talked about, is 12. Cycle interval is going to be about 32 years average. And then you can see down at the bottom, menstrual product use is really going to be normal. Three to six pads or tampons per day. So if they're using more than that, that means that their cycles are most likely a little bit heavier than normal. And that would warrant further doing a workup to see um, why that could be. In terms of menstrual abnormalities, there are a couple reasons why you would begin an evaluation for an adolescent. If they haven't started their period um, within three years of thelarchy or breast development, or if they haven't started by 14 years and they have signs of hirsutism and hair growth or excessive exercising and signs of an eating disorder, um, if they haven't started by 15 years of age with secondary sexual characteristics, um, or if they're having cycles that are more frequent than 21 days um, or lasting longer than 40, or excuse me, that occur earlier than 21 days or longer than 45 days, or if they occur 90 days apart even for one cycle. And that's a pretty common one in that most people will say, you know, well, she hasn't had her cycle in, you know, four months. I hear that's normal after her first cycle. Really, an evaluation should be um, begun if they missed more than 90 days, even for one cycle. If they're having cycles that are lasting longer than seven days, if they're requiring frequent pad or tampon changes more than every one to two hours that are soaked, or if they have heavy uh, bruising or a family history of bleeding or bleeding disorder. You can also do a positive screening test within the clinic as well that includes, have they had heavy bleeding since menarche? And do they have any family history of postpartum hemorrhaging or any surgery-related bleeding or any bleeding associated with dental work? And then two or more, have they had any bruising one to two times a month? And this is bruising that really um, is significant and where they don't know how they acquired the bruise. Does it form a hematoma or some kind of knot that they can feel underneath, truncal bruising, um, as well as epistaxis one to two times per month? And this isn't just she had sinuses or the weather was dry. This is kind of the nosebleed that takes a significant amount of time to stop, usually more than 10 minutes, or requires medical intervention, um, as well as frequent glum bleeding and a family history of bleeding symptoms. So I don't know if you've ever tried to ask an adolescent what their cycles were like. Some of them do a really great job. Most of them will say, I don't know, well, when was your last period? I don't know. Well, how many pads were you changing? I don't know, one or 10, okay. <laughs> so it can be pretty difficult to really elicit what's going on and that's really important because that will help to guide your management. And so up at the top you can see here, this menstrual calendar. And this is really something that I um, like to hand out and recommend handing out because you can give it to them as they leave your office and they can come back with it when they return. Um, and really what it allows them to do is to write down when they're having bleeding. And you can see here, this one has kind of the little um, uh, diagram to where they can say, I had heavy flow this day, or light flow, normal flow, or spotting. Um, and that can be pretty helpful in terms of when they bring that back in to get an idea about how heavy their bleeding was. You also see here this pictorial bleeding assessment chart, which also can be pretty helpful. Um, sometimes this is given on the back end and they're asked to recall, which I think is a little bit harder to do. Um, so again, I do like to give this with the menstrual calendar to get an idea when they come back to me. And you can see here, they are different types of uh, feminine hygiene products, such as pads or tampons. And these can indicate how many of light pads they had on the first day of their cycle, or how many medium or heavy pads, and similar with the tampons. And then 
they having any clots? Did they flood or bleed onto their clothing underneath? And then you tally up the score. And so a score over 100 um, usually indicates that they're bleeding too heavily or it translates into um, a blood loss of more than 80 milliliters per cycle, which is a little bit too much. And that would be a positive screen that would warrant um, a workup. And so now since adolescents are pretty much glued to their phones, these paper things aren't as popular with them. I tell them to kind of hang it on their fridge and they laugh and then sometimes it comes back to me and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but there are a lot of apps around that can help them to keep track of what's going on and they really, some of them get um, really into this and they're you know able to pull out their phones and kind of say, well, I had my cycle here. I mean, there are so many apps that they could use um, as a way to keep <laughs> my flow, pink pad, <laughs> period tracker, clue. Um, so there's so many apps that they can use um, you know, to, in order to track this. And there are more apps coming out that are going to incorporate that PBAC score into that as well to give you an idea about what their score could be. So, so far we've covered abnormal, or excuse me, normal menstrual cycle, abnormal menstrual cycle, but now let's talk about menstrual suppression manipulation. What is it, why we do it, and how do we do it? So menstrual suppression and manipulation is the use of contraceptive methods to decrease the frequency um, and the duration of menses. And the goal of this is really to reduce the amount and the total days of blood flow. And I prefer manipulation over suppression because sometimes suppression sets up the wrong expectations um, in the fact that there can be some irregular bleeding that may come about. So the goal is to reduce the amount and total days of flow. Um, and it's typically prescribed for adolescents in order to accommodate preference or to treat menstrual disorders. About a third of adolescents who are using combined oral contraceptives are really doing so for non-contraceptive reasons. And here's the answer to our first question. There is no medical indication for menstruation to occur monthly. In fact, the bleeding that usually occurs with combined hormonal contraceptive regimens was really something that was put in place when these particular um, combined hormones were um, being developed more so for religious and cultural reasons. Now, if you're not having a cycle without being on hormonal therapy, obviously that can be a risk factor for endometrial hyperplasia and malignancy. Um, but when you're on the combined hormonal contraceptives, there really is not. And it's becoming something that's more common among contracepting adolescents. So let's just go over a couple definitions um, to talk a little bit more about extended cycle regimen. So there's two traditional regimens, and the traditional regimen is really going to be a 28-day cycle. And sorry, this is a slide that was kind of added in and is not included in your printouts. Um, but there's a traditional regimen, which is 28 days, where you have 21 days of active hormones and seven placebo days. You can also have a traditional regimen with a shortened hormone-free interval, and that's usually gonna be more like your 26, 24-day regimen, and then you have a less than seven-day hormone-free interval. But the extended regimens are a little bit different. So with the extended regimen, you're taking active hormones continuously for longer than 28 days, followed by a hormone-free or a decreased hormone interval. And there are three types. There's a flexible extended regimen, in which case the person taking the pills or the user initiates these hormone-free intervals on their own, either because they start having bleeding or spotting or out of preference. There's a tailored extended regimen um, where they're also taking these hormone-free intervals, but more so only triggered by spotting. Otherwise, they're taking it consistently through. 
And then there's a continuous regimen in which regimens are taken in an uninterrupted fashion and there is no hormone-free interval at all. So why would we do this? What conditions can be treated with menstrual suppression? Um, so patient preference, as I alluded to before, menstrual-related problems such as dysmenorrhea, pelvic pain, heavy menstrual bleeding, premenstrual syndrome, endometriosis, or ovarian cysts, and then chronic conditions that can sometimes be exacerbated during that hormone-free period when the, um, the girls are on their um, uh, contraceptive. So epilepsy, migraines or other um, uh, headaches, asthma, and cystic fibrosis. Malignancy is another reason. Hematologic abnormalities such as anemia, thrombocytopenia or bleeding disorders, um, and then menstrual hygiene, which can be a, a really big deal for those with developmental delay um, or physical disabilities. So let's talk a little bit more about that. In regards to patient preference, there's about 71% of adolescents would prefer to menstruate less frequently than monthly or never. And I'm pretty sure probably most women who have had their cycles would agree with that at some point in time. It would be nice. Um, or they may decide to opt for specific events or time intervals when they um, would like to menstruate. And that can get a little bit more involved with those kids who are swimming or ballet to where when they have their cycles, it really does affect their livelihood and their life and the things that they're involved in. It makes it difficult for them to participate in those things. Um, so they can basically manipulate their cycles to where they can maybe miss, you know, state championships so they're not dealing with their cycles at that time or, you know, miss an important um, ballet or important moment or a specific time interval. There are some patients, you know, who might go away for camp and summer camp and they don't want to, you know, kind of um, figure out how to deal with that so they're able to manipulate the um, cycles so that they're not dealing with that over the summertime. Um, it does make the cycles a little bit more predictable and obviously less frequent, and then menstrual hygiene is another preference. <coughs> In regards to PMS, dysmenorrhea, and menorrhagia, which I used menorrhagia, should be heavy menstrual bleeding, um, these are more of the common reasons. And so these symptoms can often be exacerbated during the hormone-free intervals. So it has been shown that the continuous regimen does decrease PMS and pelvic pain by up to 80%. That's a pretty significant number, and it can make a huge difference in the lives of these girls who are really dealing with this pain um, that's disruptive to their lives on a monthly basis. In terms of hematologic and oncologic reasons, um, significant menorrhagia and anemia can be associated with oncologic um, issues as well as with hematologic underlying issues. We do know that DEPO can decrease the number of sickle cell crises in those who have sickle cell anemia. Um, and then in terms of chemotherapy, about 40% of those girls um, will become thrombocytopenic due to the chemotherapy and due to the treatment they're undergoing um, for their onc oncologic um, disease. And a lot of them will require heavy menstrual bleeding treatment. Induction of amenorrhea is often something that we do prior to those girls receiving chemotherapy or bone um, uh, marrow transplant. Um, and it's helpful because it can decrease the amount of blood that is lost and decrease the amount of transfusions that are needed. Um, about 77% of the time we will use GnRH agonists as well um, because there can be no bleeding, vaginal bleeding, um, if it's given four days prior to therapy. Depo can be also used, but it really works in terms of um, suppressing or decreasing menstrual flow um, about 46% of the time, which is a little bit less than the GnRH agonist. In regards to uh, headaches, 
Migraines really affect about 6 to 14% of adolescents, and they can be um, significantly crippling um, for them and cause them to miss a great deal of school. And sometimes for some girls, these can be exacerbated during their um, menses or during their placebo-free weeks. Um, so extended regimens have been shown to decrease daily headaches, reduce the duration of the headache, and also decrease the number of headaches that they experience. And then hygiene. So sometimes your menstrual cycle can get a little bit messy, especially for those who have physical and mental disabilities. It can be a pretty difficult thing um, to try to manage. Um, so depo is one that's going to be frequently requested, but this is a little bit harder to use in terms of a long term um, because there is a hypoestrogenic environment which can further lead to um, some issues with those who are not as mobile. Um, the levonorgestrel IUD is typically going to be more of an ideal treatment, um, but it's really about choosing the best method, the best method that um, is best for that individual. So how do we do it? So there are a couple different methods. So there's the combined hormonal contraceptives, and then there's your progestin-only contraceptives. So in terms of your combined, there's going to be your combination oral contraceptive pills, the transdermal patch, and the vaginal ring. In terms of progesterone-only contraception, you're going to have your oral progesterone-only pills, the progesterone-only subdermal implant, and your levonorgestrel intrauterine device. In regards to um, this um, method, the first combined oral contraceptive pill that was designed specifically for this extended use um, was approved by the FDA in 2003, and that was seasonal. And this was the one that was first approved, but really extended cycle regimens have been explored since the 70s. Um, and so with seasonality, you can see there are a lot of generic names, Tiva, Activist, Sandoz, and it basically has an 84-7 regimen in that you're taking 84 days of a continuous hormone, um, followed by seven days of a hormone-free interval. After that, soon followed Seasonique, um, generic names, Activist, Tiva, I mean, excuse me, um, Amethia, Kemrys, Ashlina, and Dicey. Um, and this also an 84-7 um, regimen. However, during the seven days, it's not a hormone-free interval. It's actually 10 micrograms of ethanol estradiol, so kind of a decreased uh, hormone during that seven days. Um, Quartet was really the first one that was designed, and this is a more recent one, to reduce the unscheduled bleeding <laughs> episodes with using continuous regimen, which is going to be more of the um, most bothersome part about the continuous regimen initially. Um, and so with this one, it's an ascending dose extended regimen in that over the 91 days um, of this regimen, the estrogen dose is actually increasing over time, but not but it, it's doing it at a decreased overall estrogen exposure. So it's starting at 20 and going up to 30. And the reason why this is helpful, or reason why they hope this will be helpful, is that the estrogen dose is increasing at particular times where unscheduled bleeding is said to be the highest. Um, so that's the idea behind this, is that it can decrease unscheduled bleeding while minimizing ethanol estradiol exposure overall. However, low seasonique, which is kind of a lower <laughs> dose of seasonique, has been overall the favorable one in terms of unscheduled bleeding because the bleeding profile um, is significantly less with unscheduled bleeding. So in regards to combined hormonal contraception, um, 
the pills, as we just talked about, you can use a 42, 63, or 84 day um, regimen with a seven day hormone free interval, or you can do a seven day low dose ethanoestradiol only interval. You can use it continuously until bleeding occurs, which is going to be more of your um, flexible and tailored regimens, or you can use it continuously through the bleeding. Breakthrough bleeding will decrease with duration of continuous use, um, and about 72% will reach amenorrhea with one year of continuous use. And that's important to note because it is with one year. So you'll have some patients who will start it and they'll have irregular bleeding within that first three months and they're ready to just give up and start over or try something else. But it can take up to one year to really reach that amenorrhea rate. In fact, about 86% of um, adolescents or people who use this extended cycling regimen will have irregular bleeding within those first three months. In terms of other options other than the pill, so there also is the patch. And this can be used for um, girls who may find daily pills a little bit challenging. Um, extended patch users do have um, fewer bleeding, uh, breakthrough episodes, few, fewer spotting days. There is a high satisfaction. But this regimen should be used with caution in the extended cycling fashion because there have been known as to be increased serum ethanoestradiol levels right before the placebo week. Um, and so it's suspected that the systemic estrogen levels are going to be 1.6 times higher than the low-dose combined oral contraceptive pills. Um, so in 2011, the U.S. FDA did issue a black box warning um, noting increased VTE risk. So it's rarely used as a first-line choice for extended cycling um, because of that reason. There also is the intravaginal ring, um, and this one is going to be your Nuva ring. Um, and this one um, can be used basically continuously. So the way to advise these girls is that what, the same day that you take it out, put a new one in instead of giving that um, hormone-free interval. Um, it can be noted that initially, the longer the duration of continuous hormones, the greater the unscheduled bleeding. Um, there was a study that compared 28 days versus a 49-day cycle with the ring. Um, and it was noted that there were going to be two additional days of bleeding. Um, and really, the way to counsel them is that if that does occur, just stop, take the ring out, and have a four-day free interval, and then restart. This can also be a, a really good option um, for those with poor pill adherence, which is a lot of adolescents, or um, if they're on another other multiple medications. In terms of the progesterone-only options, um, Depo, the levonorgestrel IUD, the progestin-only pill, and the estrogen implant um, are going to be the options there. And I will say that Depo and the levonorgestrel IUDs are going to be the ones that are more commonly used. Um, so initially, irregular bleeding is present, but amenorrhea rates at one year can get up to about 71%. And so it's really important to counsel these girls when they're beginning this extended cycling regimen that this can be something that you'll experience initial irregular bleeding, but sticking with it, that will get better, that will improve, and your cycles will decrease um, and become a little bit more manageable. Um, Levonorgestrel uh, IUDs are also supported by ACOG. In terms of other progesterone-only options, um, the progesterone-only pills aren't really used as often, um, as well as the intergestrel implant or the Nexplanon, because the amenorrhea rate with those is not as high as would be ideal. So it's particularly with the implant, about 20% of girls really experience amenorrhea. Um, so that leaves about 80% of girls who are still having their cycles and that the uh, flow of that can vary. Um, with the implant, the bleeding does 
remain as is, so it's not one that will get a little bit better with longer duration of use. And about 10% of girls will actually have the implant removed uh, due to bleeding problems or due to um, just being annoyed with the bleeding. Um, so that is something to really mention to them um, if they really are wanting that method. Um, GnRH agonists, they're not a progesterone-only method, but they are used um, because they do have high rates of amenorrhea, about 75 to 95%, um, that can occur within four weeks. Uh, there are long-term consequences, however, with inducing medical menopause in an adolescent, and there are side effects which can occur, such as hot flushing, movability, headaches. Um, so this can be kind of limiting, and but they can be um, ameliorated a little bit with um, ADVAC therapy, but those are some side effects that they may experience. So it's typically reserved for more of a short-term use. So third and final question, what is the main side effect of extended cycles and the primary reason for medication discontinuation? I heard a C. Yay, yeah, you're right. <laughs> So how do we manage this? So management of irregular bleeding, this can be one of the more frustrating things because the patient will be frustrated, they'll be calling a lot. Um, so this is really gonna be what's gonna be key and the defining factor in terms of whether or not they're gonna continue this method or not. Um, so approaches can include shortening the interval between the scheduled withdrawal bleeds. So if they're you know, withdrawing, trying to go out to every three month cycle, maybe start with every two months and kind of when they're used to that, then branch out to every three. You can try a different method. You can combine various methods, particularly using the progesterone only. If you're using an IUD and they're having spotting, you can put them on a combined oral contraceptive if they have no contraindications to estrogen. Or if they do, then you can also use um, a progesterone only uh, pill for a short period of time to decrease that bleeding that they're having. You can also add an unscheduled hormone-free interval. So that goes along with more of the flexible and tailored um, regimens. And that if they, when they have bleeding, just have them go ahead and stop the, the medication for three to four days. Um, and then also you can schedule NSAIDs, such as naproxen, um, taken in a regular manner can actually lead to decreased blood flow. You also want to make sure that they're taking their pills um, because any are taking their medications because if they tend to miss their pills or tend to miss their medications, that can lead to irregular bleeding as well. And so really it's helpful to kind of frame the question in terms of how many times a week do you forget to take your pill? Instead of saying, you know, do you remember? Have you forgotten to take your pill? Kind of opening up that option for them to be honest about it can be helpful. It can also allow you to figure out why they're having so much irregular bleeding um, in the first place. So expected bleeding patterns. This is gonna be one of the more common questions. I think it's helpful for them to have an idea um, about what the expected bleeding patterns will be after one year with the different options. Um, so combined oral contraceptives does have an amenorrhea rate at 12 months, so one year of 53 to 72%. Um, that leads to about an average of one and a half days per 84 day reference period, which I think is pretty good, but you also have to keep in mind they have to remember to take the pill. So if there's any missed pill in there, obviously that um, <coughs> average number of days can um, increase. In regards to the patch, which again is not our first line option, the amenorrhea rate at three months will be about 12%, so still a little bit low, um, with the average number of bleeding or spotting days about 14 days in an 84-day reference. The vaginal ring is gonna also be about 14 days. Moving over to the IUD, you're gonna have an amenorrhea rate at about 12 months of 50%, and that can increase um, the longer the duration that the IUD is in. 
In terms of depot, it can vary. Most people will experience about one to seven days, about 18% will have that. Um, there will be a small amount, about 12%, that will have more than 11 days of spotting within a 90-day period. But again, a minimum rate at three months can be about 46 to 71%, and certainly more than that after one year. And then in regards to the implant, it does have the highest number of um, spotting days at about 19 per 90-day reference. So there are some concerns. Um, the most the most common things that providers and patients, um, patients, parents ask questions about in regards to this regimen are, what about the clotting risk, or what about endometrial safety, or fertility, or cancer? Um, there hasn't been any evidence to show that extended or continuous COC regimens are associated with a significant increase in thromboembolic events or any other adverse events. Um, in regards to endometrial safety, the progesterone actually thins out and inactivates the endometrial lining. So there really is no physiologic need for endometrial shedding, and that adds to the protection of that endometrial um, layer. Extended regimens have no known impact for return to fertility. Um, there is about an 86% pregnancy rate within 13 months after discontinuing the medication. There can be a little bit of a delayed return um, noted with the depo, um, but typically with the other ones, that return can be pretty um, soon. And there is no data to confirm an increased risk of cancer. But on that note, let's talk about an article that was published at the end of last year, which did cause a lot of conversation. And so this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was entitled Contemporary Hormonal Contraception and the Risk of Breast Cancer. So essentially, this was a large prospective cohort study of the association between the use of newer hormonal contraceptives, including the IUD implant, and the risk of breast cancer among 1.8 million women um, ages 15 to 49 in Denmark. And these were the findings that they found. 20% higher risk among women who were currently using or had recently used any hormonal contraceptive than among those who had never used them. That's of breast cancer. 13 more breast cancers that occurred per 100,000 women using hormonal contraception and 20% more breast cancers than in women who did not use contraception. There was a risk of breast cancer that was known to be increased with longer duration of use. However, the excess risk did disappear five years after stopping hormonal contraceptives. Women who currently or recently use the progestin-only IUD had a higher risk of breast cancer than women who had never used hormonal contraceptives. There were fewer breast cancer events and no evidence of increased risk, however, in those who had used the vaginal ring, the patch, the implant, or depo. So, whoa. That's a lot of information, and that's really heavy, because those are a lot of things that we're prescribing to our patients. Those are a lot of the questions that we have. Um, so NASPAG, the North American Society of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecologists, sent out talking points regarding this article and basically how to talk with parents or any anyone who has any concerns regarding this. And the talking points were um, included the following. Increased risk is not the same as high risk. There's a 20% increase in risk does sound high, and while it is statistically significant, it doesn't reflect the overall absolute increase in breast cancers. In this study, the overall absolute increase in breast cancers diagnosed among current and recent users of a hormonal contraceptive was about one additional breast cancer case for every 7,690 women using hormonal contraception for one year. The absolute increased risk in girls younger than 35 years of age was two per 100,000. And we also want to remember um, the benefits of hormonal birth control and that it can protect 
um, or prevent pregnancies, particularly in the United States where there's a, a maternal mortality rate of about 17 per 100,000 pregnancies. It also can decrease ovarian cancer endometrial cancer and colon cancer by about 25%. And some research does demonstrate that using hormonal contraception for longer than five years can reduce your total risk of cancer. There are also other benefits which we've talked about today in terms of menstrual irregularities, cramps, as well as primary management for PCOS, endo, PMDD, acne, etc. And it also prevents against all of the things that can be associated with adolescent pregnancies, such as the social, emotional, public, and physical health risks. There were some study limitations also included in this, since that the study did not control for age at menarche, breastfeeding, alcohol consumption, exercise, diet, and BMI in the first women, some of which can be risk independent risk factors for breast cancer themselves. This also is not a randomized controlled study. And most prospective cohort studies, even if a large number of patients, can have numerous confounding factors and inherent scientific limitations. In cohort studies with less than two or three relative risk, observational findings should be viewed cautiously. So the overall take-home point from that article in case it's something that is mentioned is that we do need to counsel the patients on the recent study findings in the full context of risks and benefits of hormonal contraceptive use. Um, and they did advise against making any practice changes or um, encouraging adolescents or patients to stop their birth control at this time. Another concern is going to be your long-term bone health, and that's really with adolescents um, using the depo and how that can affect their bone health, because we do know that adolescents using depo have decreased bone mineral density. And that led to the US FDA black box warning that cautioned against the use of depo for that reason if used for more than two years. Long-term skeletal health of adolescent patients is not compromised, meaning that it hasn't been shown to increase the fracture risk as they become adults. Um, they did a study also looking at 98 girls, 12 to 18 years old, who used depo for five years. Um, and they did serial DEXA scans both during and after the depo use and noted that 37% had over 8% loss. But this baseline bone mineral density was recovered two years after discontinuation of the depo. Um, and lower bone, rate loss, lower bone loss rates were noted um, if they did consume 1,200 milligrams of calcium per day. So ACOG does not recommend limiting depo use to two years or even monitoring bone mineral density after two years of depo use. So in Newsweek, there was a uh, front page article that came out, I believe in um, 2005, or 16, 15, sorry. And this was an excerpt from that um, that I thought was really nice. And then there's a new wave that's basically coming about that's really trying to normalize and reduce some of that weight and that stigma that can be associated with menstruation. Um, and in Newsweek, they stated that menstrual periods do not kill anyone, but it is still an important issue because it affects how girls view themselves and they affect confidence. And confidence is the key to everything. And I would just like to leave you with this quote from one of um, my favorite poets. Her name is Rupi Kaur. Um, and she wrote a quote about period. Um, and it goes like this. We menstruate and they see it as dirty, attention-seeking, sick, a burden, as if this process is less natural than breathing, as if it is not a bridge between this universe and the last, as if this process is not love, labor, life, selfless, and strikingly beautiful. Thank you.